If you have your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. If you're looking in the Bible in the chairs, it is found on page 1073. And if you're visiting us and you do not own a Bible, please take that as a gift from us. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. And if you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely, but he gives greater grace? Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. October 5th, 2022, it was reported with a video that followed of the infamous punch that professional athlete Draymond Green landed on his teammate Jordan Poole. Teammates on a professional team, it was reported they were, in fact, good friends Draymond actually saw Jordan as a younger brother. The irony is it was just four months prior to that date that these two played a pivotal role in the Golden State Warriors winning another NBA title. In fact, they were projected to go back to back. And yet on that date, a punch was made knocked out Jordan, and the team was fractured. The team was known for their chemistry and culture, and all of a sudden, it just came crashing down like a house of cards. There are many speculations as to what led up to it. I have a question to consider. It's like, what could lead a team to go from camaraderie to enmity. 
It's the very same thing that can lead a church from going from unity to division. Or a marriage from going from communion to conflict. Five letters. Pride. The sin of pride leads one to exalt themselves and to put oneself ahead of others, to belittle others around you. Pride is what leads one to assume that they can say and do whatever to whoever and however, regardless of what happens. The reality is, since the fall, the human race has been a prideful people. In fact, pride comes naturally because we are fallen. And what pride always does is it destroys relationships. You've never seen a relationship that is marked by pride that leads to more love. But it always disintegrates. And by God's grace, Christ has saved us. And yet we still wrestle with the flesh. We still wrestle with pride. So often throughout the scriptures, we're exhorted to pursue humility. That in humility, count others as more significant than yourself. Colossians 3, put on kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Beloved, if we're going to, if our relationship within the congregation is going to properly reflect the kingdom of Christ, that we are called to reflect as an outpost of heaven, we must pursue humility. We must make war, not with one another, but with our flesh. That we may walk in love, that the fruit of the Spirit may be evident. And we need grace to do so. And what's so amazing about our God is that he is a gracious God. And his grace, it humbles us. And as the grace of God humbles us, it causes us to walk in love towards one another. We're going to see this in our text this morning. So our big idea for this passage is this. As Christians, resist your sinful desires and walk humbly before God. As Christians, resist your sinful desires and walk humbly before God. Three points for us, and there are three exhortations. First, resist your sinful desires. Come straight out of the big idea. Second, Return to your gracious God. Third, refuse to slander your brothers and sisters. Resist your sinful desires. Return to your gracious God and refuse to slander your brothers or sisters. So a few weeks ago, we looked at the end of chapter 3 and James was talking about Godly wisdom. 
and how the church is to be marked by this type of wisdom. And as we pursue godly wisdom by the grace of God, the fruit is peace. Peace in the body. Well, this congregation, these churches that James were writing to, they weren't marked by peace. Which leads him to give a strong rebuke that we see in this morning's passage. And so first, resist your sinful desires. Look at verses 1 and 2. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. So these churches here were not reflecting Christ, who they were united to by faith, who they were called to reflect as his people who are here. They were not properly and rightly reflecting the kingdom of Jesus that they've been brought into by God's grace. Churches ought to be an outpost of heaven and here it looked more like WWE, World Wrestling Entertainment. The congregation was marked by discord and decision, quarrels and factions. James is aware of this and he's speaking into it. And the question he asks is what is the fundamental cause of the beef that's in the body? What is the root? James asked the question. He answers the question. He said, don't they come from your passions that wage war within? James says that the fundamental cause is the sinful heart. As accurate as that answer is, it is wildly unpopular today as it has been throughout human history. For philosophers throughout the centuries, secular counselors in our day and age, and modern psychologists would answer differently because they reject the notion of original sin. They believe in the innate goodness of man. And so the answers that they would give to James's question would be poor communication, different personalities like on the Enneagram, bad upbringing, or maybe even the predicament that they're in. Beloved, the reality is these are real things that can influence tension. These things really does need to be helped. People need to be shepherded through these things. But that is not the fundamental cause. For the division and the beef and the tension, it doesn't go deep enough. James says that the root is the sinful heart. Scripture makes clear, Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, desperately wicked, desperately wicked. Who can understand it? There's a rumor reported in 1905. A newspaper threw out a question to a few people, said, what was wrong with our world today? 
And Christian philosopher G.K. Chesteron responded, said these words, Dear Sir, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesteron. Beloved, a biblical anthropology would lead one to conclude that all of humanity is sinful. That Adam, who was a perfect man, when he rebelled against God, he plunged the entire human race into sin. We are born with a sin nature. We are not good people with good hearts who sometimes make mistakes. No, in fact, we are sinners who sin. And the sin comes from within. Jesus says this in Mark chapter 7, verse 21 on down. He says, for from within... Out of, a peop- out of people's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greeds, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these things come from within and defile a person. Humanity is flawed, fallen. And sinful, and we are in dire need of a Savior. And we praise God that for the grace that He's given us in Christ, who came to save sinners, for the salvation that He gives, He brings about forgiveness and He makes all who trust in Him new creations in Christ Jesus. Where the old has gone and the new has come. Praise God for His grace. And on this side of glory, we still wrestle with the flesh. The problem is indwelling sin. That is why there is oftentimes division in the body, tension in the marriage, discord at work. That is why you lose it when your children does something so small. Sinful desires waging war. In fact, the Greek word here for passions is where we get the English word hedonism. Sinful, self-indulging desires. We read about this in our scripture reading, Galatians chapter 5. The works of the flesh. Paul got at this in Romans chapter 7. Beloved, when we are not content in Christ... We are not walking by the Spirit. We will respond sinfully when we don't get what we want. And it gets ugly, real messy. As James pointed out, murders, coveting, fights, and waging war. It's likely that the things that he named are metaphorical. At the same time, it was very disastrous. Division taking place within the congregation. In verse 3, he goes on. He says, you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. We are ruled by our flesh. Even our prayers are motivated in selfishness. To where it is not for the glory of God, not for the good of others, not even to enjoy the gifts that God gives. Instead, it's to 
squander it on our sinful passions. Just like the prodigal son in Luke 15 who asked his father for his part in the inheritance and what did he do with it? Squandered it on wild and reckless living. James says that is some of our motives when we are walking according to the flesh. And the thing is, God knows. He's fully aware. Not only does God know, but also God is so gracious towards us that he denies our request knowing that if he did, if he gave it to us, it would lead to our destruction. How gracious and loving of God. It's where he examines the motive, knowing that we would destroy ourselves, and he immediately says no. God loves you too much to contribute to your own self-destruction. In the words of Augustine, he says, God has mercy and withholds what was requested. That's important for me to say that doesn't mean that every time we're asking God something and he says no, it's because it's motivated by sinful desires. That is not the case. Many times, brothers and sisters, we're praying in faith, pleading for the Lord to do something for his glory. And even then, in his love, he still says no at times. Always being for the good of his people. So, beloved, take heart and know that every no that comes from God is always, always, always out of love. It is always out of love from him. When he says no, it's because he's for you. First three verses, focusing on our sinful desires. Reality is, our desires, they are influential, but they are not infallible. They are not always right. They are not always pure. They are not always holy. Because we are depraved. We wrestle with the flesh. And so seeing that we still live in this body of flesh, what should we do? We should get under the hood and expect, inspect the motives behind what do we want and what are we asking for? Like the psalmist prayed, God, search me and know me. Well, we should also be seeking to do that same work in our hearts and pleading for the Lord to make it known. And when our desires are sinful, turn away. Ask the Lord to do a work. Jane, look at verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, you do don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. As you've been reading the book, and as you read the book, you would know that 15 times in this letter, James refers to these congregations as brothers and sisters. Sometimes my dear or my beloved brothers and sisters. And yet here... Here, he calls them an adulterous people. 
intended to shock them and shake them up with a strong rebuke. Following the example of the prophets who were speaking to Israel and rebuking them. Well, just as Israel was unfaithful to God in the Old Covenant, well, here these churches are being unfaithful to God. Beloved, our covenant relationship with God oftentimes in the Scriptures is likened to marriage. God himself is the bridegroom. His people are the bride. See this in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and in Hosea. When we enter into covenant relationship with God, vows have been made. And as the church, we are the bride of Christ. Jesus purchased us with his blood. He unites us to himself. And how are we to be? Well, we are to be wholeheartedly devoted to Christ, our King. So when that devotion, when that affections and adoration is redirected from Christ to anything else, it is likened to spiritual adultery being unfaithful to Christ our King. James gives a reminder and a warning. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Now the world here, he's not talking like John 3.16, God loved the world. What he's talking about here is a demonic world system. Ungodly ethics under the sway of Satan himself. The ethics of this evil age call evil good and good evil. It is this world that God in his grace has called us out of. So much so that in chapter 1, James says pure and undefiled religion is to keep yourself unstained from the world. 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 to 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lusts is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. James reminds them here. That friendship with the world is hostility toward God. And so to follow and echo the message of the world, to acquiesce or to comply with the manner of the world, is to by implication make God one's foe. So if one wants to be on the right side of history, they're going to find themselves on the wrong side of eternity. To labor towards preventing oneself from being temporarily canceled will lead one to be eternally condemned. Because the world opposes God. We are all prone to this. Questions to consider is whose ways lead to life and whose ways lead to death? Whose friendship is sweeter? 
the God of all grace, who gives life in his son or the world's. Whose hostility, whose opposition, better yet, is worse? The Holy One, the Lord of hosts, or the world's? Because we are prone towards befriending the world, the question to consider is where are you tempted in this area? This would be good to discuss with your D groups. Married couples, this would be good to discuss with your spouses. This is also good to discuss with your roommates. And not only talk through, but also pray for one another. Encouraging one another. Bringing God's word to bear in that specific area that we may grow and fight off these desires. Here we see how deadly and destructive the flesh truly is. Leads to hostility with one another and hostility with God himself, the one who loves us and who is gracious. Such reality should lead us to constantly deny ourselves and daily pick up our crosses and follow Jesus, clinging to him all the more. But if we're going to resist our fleshly desires we must first and foremost and solely be captivated by the beauty and glory and love of Jesus Christ. To where our prayer echoes the prayer of David in Psalm chapter 27, 4. I have asked one thing from the Lord is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing upon the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. Because here's the thing, the more we treasure Christ, the more repulsed we'd be by our flesh, and the more we find all the temptations of the world as repulsive also. If we're going to treasure Jesus, then we need to get in this word and seek him first. Seeking for us to be happy in the Lord. So may we resist our fleshly desires. The question is, well, what do we do when we don't? What do we do when we give in? That brings us to our second point. Return to your gracious Father. Return to your gracious God. Look at verse 5. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says, the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? Y'all, I'm going to be real. This is a very hard verse. This is a very hard verse. The CSB, the ESV, and the NASB all words it differently. And when you read this verse, a number of questions may come to mind like, What's the scripture reference or is this referring to the Holy Spirit or the human soul or who is doing the envying and the jealousy? And y'all commentaries gave multiple interpretations, different interpretations actually. All three of them that I looked at and some. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give y'all my interpretation. I'll explain why. I'm going to let you guys wrestle with it. Okay? Simple as fact. Simple as that. And so 
I side more with the ESV's interpretation of the writing where it says, or scripture says, he jealously yearns for the spirit he made to live in us. And the reason, well, not before I get to the reason, I believe spirit here is referring to the human soul. I believe that God has made us embodied souls. We are souls and bodies. I also believe that the one who is jealous is God himself. He's jealous for our devotion, our worship. Now, as I say, it's important for me to make known that this isn't a sinful jealousy. And the reason is because there is no sin, no wickedness, or no evil in God at all. His jealousy is a holy zeal for our affections. And one of the reasons why I believe this is context also leads me to conclude this because the preceding verse, James was just talking about the people were adulterous. Their affections moved away from God and towards the things of this world. The preceding verses beyond that was talking about sinful fleshly desires and being ruled by them. So God here, he is zealous for our affections, and rightfully so, because he is our creator and he is our redeemer. These things belong to him by right as he has made us for his glory. In the law, after God had delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, entered into covenant with them, the second command, you shall not carve out idols. And he says, you shall not bow and worship to them. And do not serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And so if God was jealous for Israel's worship in the Old Testament, he is so much more jealous for ours because our redemption is Christ is, in Christ is even greater. We are redeemed and ransomed by the blood of Christ his law has been written into our hearts. We have new hearts. His spirit dwells within us. And so he is jealous for our worship and our affections. For they are his by right, being creator and in Christ our redeemer. That's how I take it. The thing is, what's the most staggering thing that James says? is what he says in the very next verse. But he gives greater grace. But he gives greater grace. After hearing that the Lord is jealous, you would expect to read something like he dispenses his wrath. For I'm sure that's what we would do if we were God. In response to spiritual adultery and unfaithfulness, we probably would have been done with ourselves a long time ago. And praise God that he's not like us. The scripture says, but he gives greater grace. Behold the unmerited favor of God that he pours out in infinite measure on his people. He is rich in grace, and he richly supplies it towards his people in Jesus. And it is rooted in his love for us. 
What we see here is that God is a God of another chance and another chance and another chance and another chance. And it's only made possible because Jesus Christ absorbed all the wrath that was reserved for us. The blood of Jesus, it covers all of our sins. All of our spiritual unfaithfulness to God, Jesus paid for. There is not one ounce of wrath reserved towards us in Christ because of Jesus. And there is infinite measures of grace that he gives and gives and gives. Friends, if you're here and you are not a Christian, I'm glad that you're here. I want you to know that God is not this ill-tempered tyrant. But he is gracious. He is patient. Friends, he knows all the ways that you have rebelled against him. Fully aware. No sin is hidden from his sight. And yet, he still offers you life. He offers you forgiveness. He loves sinners. He sent his son to die for sinners. He wants to give you life, and it's by turning from your rebellion and placing your trust and confidence and hope in his son. If you do that, God will save you by, your, by his grace. If you want to have more conversations about the grace of God and how to respond rightly to the gospel of Jesus Christ, friends, you can talk to any of the members after service. We love having these convos. In verse 6, James, he quoted Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And what this serves as an invitation towards repentance. James is holding out the grace of God to magnetize our hearts towards repentance beckoning us to come to him with broken and contrite hearts and turning away from our rebellion. Because the grace of God is what melts the hard heart. The grace of God is what warms us to turn away from our rebellion and come back to him. And in verses 7 to 10, James unpacks what repentance looks like. He gives Ten exhortations towards repentance to turn from sin and turn back to God. Verse 7, he says, submit to God. This is the, renuncia the renunciation of one's sin of living for oneself and humbly submitting to the good and lordship of our God. And then he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is an exhortation and a promise. Just as in verse 6, God resists the proud, or we are to resist our enemy, Satan himself. The one who gasses up people seeking to devour them. We are seeking to resist his influence and temptation. The way we do it is by seeking God. 
deliberately and intentionally through word and prayer, prioritizing the spiritual disciplines and combating all of Satan's temptations with the word. Just as Jesus did in the wilderness. All three times he was tempted, all three times, how did he respond? It is written, it is written, it is written. And so, beloved, if we're going to resist the temptations of the evil one, we need to know what it is written in this word. I'll say it again for glow. <laughs> if we're going to resist Satan's temptations, then we need to know what is in this word. Because the only way that you can fight lies is by knowing the truth. James goes on in verse 8. He gives another exhortation and a promise. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is likely alluding to Zechariah chapter 1 verse 3. It says, return to me and I will return to you. Beloved, behold, the grace, the love, and the welcoming of God. That regardless of what sin that we've committed, regardless of what you and I have done, he beckons us to draw near to him. That if we draw near and promises that if we draw near with contrition and with repentance, his arms are open and he draws near to us with cleansing and the restoration of communion. That he wants us to be back and he wants to welcome us in. Let me address the children in the room. So kids, as you know, you are sinners. Cute sinners, but still sinners. (laughs) And you disobey your parents. And when you do, Your parents want you to come to them. They want you to be honest with them. They love you. They want you to tell them everything. And when you ask for forgiveness, it is likely that they not only forgive you, but they would give you this warm embrace of love, letting you know that we're good, and that we love you. Well, children, this is what God does in an infinitely greater way for all of his children in Jesus Christ. He loves us like that, and he loves you. And what he wants is for you to come to him. Jesus himself says, let the children come to me. And when you come to Jesus and place your faith in him. He will give you the greatest of hug and never let you go. And God himself will wrap you in his loving arms and remind you and affirm his love for you that in Jesus Christ, you are his child. Children, if you haven't already, go to Jesus. For his arms are wide open and he loves you and he wants you. Let's look at verse 8 and 9 once again. 
Draw near to God and he would draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. James here unpacks how thorough repentance actually is. That it is a turning to God, as one commentary would say, in deed and in disposition. He says, cleanse your hearts. This is the very act, turning away from the ways that you've sinned with your hands. And look what he says about the heart. Purify it, mourn, be miserable, and weep. These are dealing with the affections. So with contrition, we are sorrowful over our sin against God. We are mourning, not merely because of the consequences, but who we sinned against. We don't conceal it. In fact, we confess it with humility and brokenheartedness. And we rehearse the gospel of Christ knowing that Jesus has paid it all. And in light of what God has done for us in Christ, there's this commitment to changing our conduct by the grace of God. This is what repentance looks like. Paul talked about this in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9 and 11. He talks about how godly grief leads to repentance. A desire to clear oneself, indignation over our sin, zeal, and deep longing for God. The reality is, genuine faith is a repentant faith. Genuine faith is evidenced in a lifestyle of ongoing turning away from our sin and turning towards God. We repented and believed the gospel unto salvation, and we continue to repent and believe. Why? Because we live in this body of flesh. Because we sin at times, and so we don't conceal it, we don't make light of it, we don't excuse it. Instead, we confess it and turn away. In verse 10, James, once again, goes back to humble submission. He started with that in verse 7. He concludes with it in verse 10. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. As we acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy and our need for Jesus, he responds with grace. Eschatologically, in times, exalting us. And reigning with him. How gracious God is. That he wants us to return. That he holds out grace. That he gives sweet and precious promises that beckons us to come back to him. Beloved, if you are ensnared with any sin in any way, heed the instruction in the second point to return to your gracious God. He wants you to come back. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to restore that communion. And it begins with repentance. So we're to return to our gracious God. We're to humble ourselves before the Lord. And an implication of humbling ourselves is displayed in how we relate to one another. 
to our next and final point, refuse to slander your brother or sister. Look at verse 11 and 12. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? One of the things I love about verse 11 is James reaffirms his love for the congregation. He reaffirms the sincerity of their faith in Jesus. How do we know? He calls them brothers and sisters. How pastoral and like a shepherd after rebuking them, letting them know, I believe that you are a brother and sister in the Lord. See, throughout the letter, James is very pastoral. And if you read it, it's easy to overlook it. To where you can glare at all the exhortations and just gloss over the familial language that is sprinkled all throughout the letter. That would be the wrong way to read James. He is lovingly exhorting them, reaffirming his love for them. And here, he's prohibiting them from slander, from condemning and railing against and speaking ill of fellow brothers and sisters. And why? Because it is the antithesis of love. That's important for us to know that this is not synonymous. Slander is not synonymous with a rebuke or correction. These are loving things to do, to lovingly confront your brother or sister in response to wrongdoing and to do so for their good. That's not criticizing or slandering. That's being faithful brothers and sisters. That is with the goal to make right a relationship and to seek restoration, which we should be doing. James is telling us to not condemn, not chide, not rail against. And as we humble ourselves before the Lord, there is no room for self-righteous, to self-righteously stand over and condemn anyone. Beloved, the cross levels the playing field. So we are only looking up to Jesus. And when we look down, we see no one. To slander or defame a fellow brother and sister is to play judge. When in fact, God only calls us to be brothers and sisters. He commands us to love, to fulfill the royal law and to build up one another. And what he's getting at here is the reality that slander not only speaks ill of your neighbor, but it also by implication speaks ill of God and his law. Similar to just as you're driving and you don't like the speed limit, you're speaking ill about that law and you're also speaking ill about the people who instituted that very law that you don't like. And so when you're speaking ill, when we're slandering, we're despising the law. We're intentionally transgressing it. It shows what we reveal about the law and by implication the lawgiver. By implication, we're saying that we think we would make a better God than God. That we would give a better law than the one he's given. 
That we would say, not your law, but mine. Not your will, but mine. This is not evidence of humility, but pride. Beloved, the throne has been eternally occupied. There is only one author and administrator of the law, and he's the judge and the savior. It is before him that we will stand. No one is standing before us. So we have to humble ourselves and remind ourselves who is God and who is not. Our responsibility is to lovingly and willingly submit ourselves and walk in love. But as we humble ourselves before the Lord, we are going to speak well of the people that he has made and that he has purchased. It's evidence of humility. So, beloved, pride, it really does destroy. It really does fracture our unity and sever sweet communion. But by God's grace, we really can war against the flesh and walk humbly before our gracious king. And as we do that, we're going to be walking in humility and love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we need your grace. We praise you that you are a gracious God who gives and gives and gives. Father, help us to walk in love, to resist our flesh, to submit ourselves to your rule and authority and to do so with great joy. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.